the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Chewing Company and other factors. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. the truth I long to see. God said one day I'd be free. All trying led to failure. That's when I heard him whisper all of Jesus, none of me. All of Jesus, all of Jesus, all of Jesus, none of me. And endless celebration when I found him in wondrous jubilee. Should you ask, I'll gladly tell you of the key to our salvation, all of Jesus, none of me. All of Jesus, all of Jesus, all of Jesus, none of me. Of Jesus, none of me.
one of the most solemn scriptures of any I read is found in the book of Matthew in the 28th chapter. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee. And I'm Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. And thank you for joining us for today's broadcast. This passage in Matthew 28 I'll read it for you. It's obvious that Jesus did not come and die on Calvary to give birth to an institution. He did not come and die on Calvary in order that we could have our comfortable padded pews, our social gatherings, and think that that was church go and have a little inspiration at church and then go about your life. That was not what Jesus died to create. He died to bring forth an atonement for sin that would allow him to bring on the earth the kingdom of God. Now what's our part in that? This very sobering passage found in Matthew 28, I'll begin with verse 18. And Jesus, having come near, spoke to them, saying, All authority was given to me in heaven and on earth. After having gone, you must make disciples of all nations. So after Jesus is gone, you must make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all things, whatever I commanded you, and pay attention. I, I am with you all the days until the end of the age or the end of the world. Amen. Well, who was this addressed to? It was addressed to his disciples, not just the twelve, but to all of his disciples. These these are literally the last words Jesus is speaking before he departs for heaven. It was addressed by Jesus to those of his disciples who were then present, but it was for all who would call themselves Christians. For it is not at all likely that Christ expected the disciples to do all the work. He doubtless meant to devolve the responsibility upon all who call themselves Christians, to rest upon their conscience in all coming time until the work should be done. This is Jesus' command to you and to me. This is our job in the kingdom of God. So Charles Finney, speaking about this, asks the question, well, what is implied in this command? And he answered, the command itself implies the ability to obey it. Every command of God implies this in the strongest manner. It should be remembered that God is perfect in both love and wisdom. Therefore, he cannot be so unjust as to demand of us an impossibility, nor so ignorant as not to know the real limits of our powers. But again, let it be 
observe that Christ assumes our ability to obey this command on the ground that he has all power in heaven and in earth and has promised to be with the church in this work. In the 18th verse, he said, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. The command follows, go ye therefore that it is for this reason, because I have all power in heaven and on earth, go and make Christians of all nations, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. We see then that Jesus assumes our ability on the ground that he has all the power in heaven and earth and promises to be with us always, even unto the end of the world, pledging in his divine agency to work inside of us, to will and to do, and outside of us, to open the way providentially for our labor. To work by his spirit in those to whom he published the gospel. Thus Jesus expects his divine power in heaven on earth so far as it is needed in accomplishing this great work. The command literally implies that the great work of the church militant is to make disciples of all nations. In other words, to convert the world to God. Yes, so as we shared yesterday, the first instance after the day of Pentecost of a healing on the earth with Jesus no longer present was when James and John went to the temple and they healed the lame man who had been lame since his mother's birth. And so the question that begged to be answered around this time of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit was, could the church really finish the work that Jesus started? So when you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus bringing the kingdom of God on the earth. He's calling and making disciples. He's giving the power that he has to others. He's healing. He's casting out demons. He's cleansing the lepers. He's raising the dead. Now the question then remained, when Jesus gave this command, in the, which we now find in the Gospel of Matthew, is could the church really keep doing those things Jesus had done? And not only that, could they actually finish this work? Could they go into the whole world and convert the world to God? Could they truly make Christians of every single nation so that every single nation had the light of God shining in it? Well, so what we saw is that, yes, the power of God was given on the day of Pentecost, and the book of Acts is the recorded events of this explosive birth of the church because... It is exactly as Jesus promised. He is with them from that first moment at Pentecost until the end of the world. So this means that until the work is finished, we have Christ's promise to be with us in completing the work. Now, what's also implied in this command is that this is the only work of the church. It's the only business that we as Christians have while we're on this earth. The only business that a Christian has 
is to glorify God in the world's conversion. We are to do, we are to say nothing, we are to be nothing more or less than is conducive to this end. To do this with our whole being, our time, our influence, and our possessions. These all have to be consecrated to this work. In that solemn hour when Christ gave this command to the disciples, Jesus doubtless meant to give them his whole mind in these few last words. Go, apply yourselves directly to the conversion of the world, and finish the great work which I have begun. I have given you the example. Let your eye likewise be single, and your devotion unwearied and entire. Now I want to say here that we have been taught so many theologies about why Jesus came that we've missed the main point, which is simply that Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God to the earth. And we see his example of doing that in the Gospels. And then in the book of Acts, we see the church continuing that work. Yes. And that church is to continue, and that work is to continue until it's finished. And we often find ourselves asking, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Why is this all still going on? Well, it's all still going on because the church hasn't finished the work yet. When the church finishes the work, it'll be done. It'll be the end of the world at that point. Christ will return. There won't be any need for this whole plan of creation to go on this way. And then we know about the final judgment. We know about the new heavens and the new earth that are coming. But right now we have a job to do before any of that can happen. So the next thing to consider, well, before we consider this, I just also want to add, when we speak about consecration to God, it is consecration to this particular work. And this is probably the number one stumbling block that I see among Christians, that I see among the righteous, is this mistaken understanding that I can be consecrated to Jesus without being consecrated to converting the world. I can be consecrated to Jesus, but have nothing to do with winning one soul. So I can be consecrated to my devotional life. I can be consecrated to my piety. I can be consecrated to my social gathering called church. But none of that is what we're called to be consecrated to. The focus, as you're saying, has to be consecration to what God has called us to. And that's only going to happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we find this problem across denominations. You find it in the more liturgical churches. You find it with people who follow Catholic or Anglican prayer books, have very rigorous personal devotions they follow. You find it in Baptists, you find it in Protestants, you find it in non-denominational Christians who have what their kind of private, personal prayer times are. And then that's the extent of any devotion that they have to God. And then they go out and they live the rest of their life, apparently not doing anything to convert people. 
and yet they think that they've somehow been consecrated to God because of those personal devotions. But to be consecrated to God is to be consecrated to the Great Commission of making disciples. Now, what are the conditions of obedience to this command? In other words, if we're going to say, okay, I'm going to obey this command, well, how are we going to do that? The first condition, as we've just mentioned, is hearty and entire consecration to this work. The church will never accomplish this work of making disciples of all nations. The church will never accomplish it until we go forth in the true spirit of the requirement, being devoted with a single eye to this work as Christ was. We look at the example Jesus gave us. There's, he, It's incredible. He just had this unwavering, single-minded mission the whole time he was here. And he never deviated from that. And no matter how much the Pharisees or the Sadducees or Herod tried to get him off track, he just stayed on point. Well, that's the example that we are to follow. So when we say this, we're not saying that every Christian should be a preacher or that every creature, every Christian should be a, a pastor of a church. Because there's a great many kinds of work to be done in converting the world. Preaching is just a small part of the work. There are many other things that are involved. Things like printing, writing, engineering, architecture, building, IT work, broadcasting, agriculture, business, commerce, buying and selling, trade. In short, all of the useful employments of this world are to be employed by the church as part of the Great Commission. In other words, all of the employments are to be pursued with the same end of converting the world. Now, this means that not only ministers must be consecrated to this work, but laymen and laywomen also, you, our listeners, are to be consecrated to this work. Every Christian, regardless of age, is to be consecrated to this work, from the five-year-old to the 95-year-old. Whatever our immediate occupation is, whether we are a farmer or whether we are a teacher, we are to pursue it with the same singleness of eye and the same entire consecration to the great end of the world's conversion that ministers are bound to have in preaching the gospel. We all understand that ministers should preach for the glory of God. We expect them to consecrate themselves to the work of the world's conversion. And we understand that this is their great business in life. This is their life work. This is their job for life. And that if they were to leave this, either in their heart or in their actions, that they would really be apostatizing to give up this full-hearted giving th themselves in heart and soul. Now, if this is true of ministers, it is equally true of all Christians. As I said, whether your job is standing behind a counter, ringing up groceries, whether you're sitting behind a desk, 
whether you're writing or printing or doing anything else, you are required by God to be as entirely consecrated to his glory and to the world's conversion as the minister is required. And unless you do this, you can never be saved. Laymen and women judge rightly in respect to what is required of ministers, but they should understand that precisely the same is required of them. Until this is recognized by the church at large, and until the followers of Christ in every denomination consecrate themselves to this work with as single an eye as ministers are bound to have, the work can never be performed. And we see this really clearly when we just stop and consider the horrible evil that just seems to be taking over the entire world. Things that I don't even like to talk about, but I mean the trafficking of children, sex trafficking of 12 and 8 year olds, horrible things are happening. Northern Virginia and the Washington DC area is actually has the highest human trafficking in the whole country. It's not like these are problems that just exist off in the third world somewhere. Now the only way this evil is going to be defeated is by the Holy Spirit in and through consecrated Christians. As I think about that, I remember the parable that Jesus told. The father asked two sons to go work in the vineyard. One son said, yes, of course I'll go. And then he didn't go. The other son said, no, I'm not going. And he went. And which pleased the father? Obviously, the one who actually went to the vineyard and went to work. So, Alexandra, you're saying that you believe this is a salvation issue. Would you say more about that? Yes. So, to be clear, I'm not the only one who has suggested this. You've, you'll find Charles Finney and Catherine Booth were both very strong on this point, that when we're saved, it is for the purpose of serving God. Because to be saved is to be saved from a state of sin to a state of righteousness and so when we give ourselves to Jesus and we make a profession of faith we say I'm gonna be a Christian from now on that means I'm going to obey every command of Jesus and Jesus's command is that we go and make disciples of all nations so I can't just blow off the main mission of the church the final command of Jesus before he returns to heaven, the very purpose for which he came was to establish his kingdom on the earth, the very purpose for which he made atonement, was raised from the dead, and then returned to heaven instead of staying here, was so that he could send the Holy Spirit to live in us to finish this work. God is in the business of redeeming the fallen world from sin. He's in the business of destroying sin. So I can't try to pretend like I can have an interest totally separate from the interest of God and yet somehow still be saved. 
so literally, and I'm agreeing with you, we're saying that the work of the gospel must be accomplished by the church, by you and by me, by us. And it means that every one of us have to be employed full-time in the work of the gospel, that that is our primary focus in life. So at the job, whatever it is you do, at home as a stay-at-home mom with your circle of friends, everything is centered on your winning and teaching and educating the people around you about the requirements of God and bringing them into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I can hear some of you saying, Pastor, that's just not my personality. I can't do that. I don't know what to say. Well, the, the reason you're answering me that way is because you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave this command based on he had all authority on heaven and in earth. He has all the authority. And he said, I will send to you the comforter. And when he comes, he will accomplish these things through you. So literally, this is driving me to intense daily prayer, asking for the power of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because without it, we're dead in the water. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own. Now, there's another issue that needs to be looked at, and that is union of effort, working together as a church, and working together as churches, coming together, no longer allowing divisions to occur on minor points of theology. In other words, Christians across <clears throat> denominations coming together. Mm -hmm. And labor together for the conversion of the lost in the community without any concern for who's going to join whose church. I mean, there are certain fundamentals that we can all agree on if we call ourselves Christians. One is that Jesus died on the cross for our sin that he died as an atonement for our sin, that he was resurrected on the third day, that he's returning to judge the living and the dead. All of us agree on this. So all of us can come together across denominational lines around the person of Jesus Christ because he is the one we all claim as our Lord and our Savior. Now, what happens when you die? Is there a secret rapture? There are many questions that are not essential for salvation. We've got to come together around the essential questions of salvation and join in our work together 
for the salvation of the lost. Another aspect of this is that we fulfill Jesus's command to love each other, that we love each other intensely, and we labor for the world's conversion sincerely, so that these minor points of doctrine, which typically most of us will even admit are minor points, aren't a source of division. The problem with trying to fulfill the Great Commission with trying to convert the world while we stick in our denominations is that we're not converting people to God if we do that. We're just converting them to our denomination. So instead of making Christians, we end up making Anglicans, making Baptists, making Seventh-day Adventists, and we're not fulfilling God's commission. We say, well, if you will verbally agree with all of our confession of faith or with these 27 doctrinal points then you will be admitted into our denomination into our church that's not what jesus is talking about he's talking about a true repentance a true turning from all sin of giving ourselves completely to jesus to love and to serve him all the days of our life so another condition of obedience to this great commission Jesus gave as he was ready to go back to heaven is the realization of individual responsibility. You are responsible before Jesus for whether or not the lost are saved, even as I am. But there seems to be a strange shrinking away in this matter. Many Christians do not seem to realize that every man and every woman of them is pledged on the solemnity of an oath to do his and her utmost to convert the world to God. In making a profession of faith, they pledge implicit obedience to Jesus. Now this is his last, and may I say, his great command. This is the summary of everything he said to us in all of his requirements. It's the condensation of the whole gospel duty to convert the world. Now to accomplishment of this end, every Christian of every age stands pledged or he is not a Christian. He has pledged his whole being, influence, time, property, talents, resources, everything he has or is in his control are pledged to this work. Nothing less than this is implied in pledging obedience to Jesus and in making a public profession of faith. It, it causes my heart great joy to get a note from a, a brother or a sister saying, enclosed find resources for the work of the gospel because they recognize that they can't go on the radio and talk with people as we do. And so this particular form of communication is very helpful to them and to many others. And they say, look, I'm going to sacrifice everything I have for this work of the gospel. My father paid his tithe at his church, and then 40% of the rest of his income 
he gave to radio ministry and to missions. He couldn't go, but he could give. And then in addition to that, he had weekly Bible studies that he held in various people's homes because he was a salesman. And he found people in his sales work who were willing to meet once a week for a Bible study. And my dad would sit down and he would open his big black Bible. And oh, he knew that Bible, even though he'd only had a third grade education. And he would walk through the scriptures with people teaching them the commands of Jesus. He was an introvert. This was not easy for Dad. But he was empowered by the Spirit to reach out, to touch the lives of other people. He was, in every sense, a missionary in America. So, if you make a public profession of Jesus then you are obligated to do what the Holy Spirit leads you to do until the world is converted. Every Christian, man, woman, and child, must address himself and herself decidedly and exclusively to this work or it will not be done. And this, I want to speak to those of you who are teaching children or teaching Sunday schools or teaching adult Sunday school. You have a wonderful opportunity to teach people how to be effective in this work of converting the world. I feel such pain in my heart when I observe children's Sunday schools that seem to primarily just be focused on teaching the stories of the Bible in minute detail, making some crafts and coloring, and yet there's nothing ever said about how they're to live as Christians. There's no instruction given on getting together with their friends at school for a play date, and then how can they open up the scriptures with their friends. I knew a young man who was very passionate about Jesus from when he was a child, and he would go play with his neighborhood friends and then invite them to come back to his house for a popsicle. They, kept, they had a freezer in their garage where they kept popsicles. So all the kids would come, he'd give them all popsicles, and then he had the notes from the sermon from that week at church, and he would talk to the kids in the neighborhood about the sermon. He would basically preach the sermon back to these kids. Now, this would have been much better if his parents had given him a little guidance on, on this whole thing, but children are wonderful missionaries to other children. They can reach them in a way we can't. So I encourage you, if you are in any position at all of teaching children or adults, to really take the time to pray and ask yourself, how can I teach these people to be effective in converting the world, and specifically in converting those sinners who are around them. Now, related to this, as Christians, as the church, we must not expect that the Great Commission be, is to be entirely or even primarily fulfilled through a learned, educated, erudite, select few. In other words, we're not to think that we're just to leave the work to our pastors and some evangelists and the rest of us don't have any part in it. 
It is absurd if we think that we could ever send forth a sufficient number of men and women who are thus educated to convert the world. Now, some educated people are indispensable to fulfilling the Great Commission. For example, we need educated men and women to translate the Bible to other languages, to create audio Bibles, to write books, to write critical commentaries, to produce radio broadcasts, to produce television broadcasts, and to bring forth everything that belongs to the literature and study of the Bible. So these people have their places, and they're very important, and are indeed indispensable to fulfilling the Great Commission. But in all honesty, we should not expect more of them than what they're really able to accomplish, which is primarily that they're devoted to this study of the scriptures. They don't have the time, nor are they the right men and women to go right forth and reap the harvest. We can think of it as these are the people who are engaged in manufacturing the tools and preparing men and women for the work. They're stationed here and there to do many things, which the less educated cannot do, but it should not be for a moment imagined that colleges and universities and seminaries are going to provide enough people for the world's conversion. The fact is that laymen and laywomen must come up to this work and make personal and direct effort and really preach the gospel, or as we would say today, to tell the story of the cross and to press that truth on the conscience. We're not just to talk on Christian subjects with people or talk about Jesus or talk about the church, but we are to really apply the truth of the cross, the truth of the coming judgment, the truth of the return of Christ, of the resurrection of the dead. We are to apply these to the individual and press them to become Christians. Now, as I've said, the colleges and the theological institutions have their places, but when everything is said and done, when we finally do finish this work as a church, when we finally do fulfill the Great Commission, we'll probably discover that these educated people may be number one to a thousand or one to ten thousand of the total number of people who were engaged in fulfilling the Great Commission. Now the church should also not expect to accomplish this work wholly or perhaps even mainly through any professional staff. There are hundreds and thousands of men and women who are not who are not well educated, but I'll tell you what, when these people, like my father, get a hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they begin to go out with the fire of God in their heart, with the passion of God in their spirit, and they begin to talk with people everywhere. For a number of years, my dad worked as a call porter. Now, you may not know what that word call porter means, it means he went door to door selling uh, 
Christian literature and Bibles, looking for an opportunity to share the gospel with other people. And he found many with whom to share that word of God. Now it's also clear that everyone will not accept. But if we're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, if we're proclaiming the word of life, people will respond. They responded to Jesus. And if you have been given the gift of healing and you begin to heal people, people will pay attention. So if you have read the gospel, if you've read Acts of the Apostles, you know that all the apostles labored for a considerable number of years in and about Jerusalem, while the laymen and women went everywhere preaching the gospel. It was lay people who went to Antioch, where we were first called Christians. It was lay people who first went to Samaria and opened the work with hundreds of people believing, founding churches. Now, there was a great struggle in Jerusalem, but when the persecution arose around Stephen, it's like the fist came down and they were pushed out and ran everywhere to preserve their lives and their families. And everywhere they went, they diffused the knowledge of Jesus, who's the Savior of the world. Everything was about Jesus. Another condition of obedience to this command of the Great Commission is the exhibition or the practice of brotherly love and Christian confidence. You will recall in the Gospel of John chapter 17, Christ's last prayer is recorded, and he made this brotherly love the condition of the world's conversion. I quote, Neither pray I, says he, for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through, the, through their word that they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Let me jump in here. I'm going to be very straight up and very forthright in what I'm going to say. Please don't be offended, but if the shoe fits, put it on. I find that Christians, by and large, do not take the time or find that they have the time to be in fellowship with other Christians. There's a hesitancy to call. There's a hesitancy to visit. There is a, a shyness. Now, if, if a bunch of guys are going to get together and go shoot skeet, okay, great, let's get together and go shoot the skeet. Or let's go in some other sporting activity. Let's go to the baseball game. Let's go to the football game. Let's use a female example here. Let's go shopping and get our nails done. Yeah. I mean, people can hook up easily and do those kinds of things. But where's the time to sit together in an informal way in one another's homes 
and just enjoy reading the scriptures aloud to one another and to talk about it and to pray impromptu, just, hey, let's go by over Bob's house. Let's go to Bob's house. Bob, are you home tonight? Yeah. Can we come by? Of course. And you go by and you have some time just to sit together and talk together and pray together. This is strangely absent in America. It just doesn't happen. Now, to be honest, part of why this doesn't happen is because there are, in many cases, very real reasons why we cannot trust each other. For example, this teaching of the sinning Christian has pretty much destroyed all accountability for sin in the church. Now, the problem is when you start to fill in specific sins, you get things like this. He can't stop cheating on his wife. He's always going to be a sinner. Okay, now we have a serious problem because how are we going to have Christian love and unity when you have this spouse, whether it's a man or a woman who's being cheated on, who feels like they've been betrayed by their church. No one's advocating for them. No one's taking a stand for their family. There's no peace in their family. Now, that's going to destroy the integrity of the fellowship. And so this confidence has to actually be built on something real. There has to be a real integrity in our Christian life, a real dependability that we do do what we say we're going to do. We are faithful in attending meetings. We we communicate with each other about when we can and can't come. We make sacrifices for each other. If we see someone is struggling financially or even if just they've had to pick up a lot of overtime and they don't have time to cook for their family. I've done this before. I saw a family that had, it was like a blended family, multiple marriages, and they had six kids. And I said to them, can I just come over and cook for you one night? I'm, I can't even imagine how you have time to cook for your whole family. You're both working. They were like, we would love that. So I went over to their house and made two giant chicken bakes for them. And the kids loved it. And we had a great time of fellowship together. We shared scripture. We sang. We prayed. These are just the basic things that actually build trust and confidence and love and relationship in the church. But if my focus is on my own personal devotion, my own personal piety, my own trauma, if my focus is on surviving alone, then there will be no time for the church. Another key one is it's really important that we follow the principle laid out in Matthew 18. Unresolved conflict will kill your confidence and love for one another. And Jesus said if we have a conflict, just go talk to the person. Or if we feel we've been offended or if we become aware that we have offended somebody else, go clear it up. We don't need to have these unresolved conflicts between us. There, there's no virtue in that. Uh, likewise, a few other things I'll mention. We want to avoid hypocrisy, secret sin, skipping meetings, being erratic in your giving, questionable habits or behavior, things that would make others doubt your character. Now, the reason this is important is that the ungodly as they listen to our preaching of the gospel, 
it's just going to sound like a theory to them unless we are actually living out the love between us. If the gospel can't produce peace and love among its own people, why is anyone going to want to join it? They're not going to. They Christians won't deserve or have the confidence of the world until we deserve and have the confidence of each other. If we can't trust each other, if we can't confide in each other, why do we think the lost will confide in us? Now, on the other hand, you will find that where Christians are united, where Christians do love each other, as the scripture says, with a pure heart fervently, and we have the greatest confidence in each other, this really impresses the world. It impresses the sinners around us, and they begin to immediately say, what shall I do to be saved? Now, part of what we have to look at, frankly, in all of this, is having confidence in the presence and power and readiness of Jesus to go with us for the accomplishment of this work. The apostles and early Christians realized that Christ was in earnest when he said, All power is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, and lo, I'm with you even unto the end of the world. They seemed to understand that Jesus was really earnest in this matter and that he really was ready and able and willing and that the whole heart of Jesus was set on this work. Now, do you believe that Jesus can provide for you and for your family if you take your time and consideration for his work? He said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is, seek the kingdom of God, the authority of God exercised over this world. Seek this kingdom of righteousness, of holiness, of salvation for the lost. Seek this kingdom, and everything else will be given to you. He's setting priorities for us to understand and to follow. Now, it's very clear in my heart that we cannot do this work without the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we are going to have to meet the conditions for the Holy Spirit to come and anoint us with purity and with power. We are unfit for the work of the gospel if we have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. We're unfit for the work of the gospel if we're still walking in wickedness, in sin, in iniquity. If we're still sitting and watching our evenings, the baseball game or the, or the sports, we're unfit for the work of the gospel. If you're still going to the theater if you're still watching the movies, if you're still totally engaged in your video games, you are unfit for the kingdom of God and for the work of the gospel. 
So it means we've got to understand Jesus is serious about this. He has work for us to do. And our salvation is dependent on whether or not we engage with him in his work to save the lost. But to do that, we're going to have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Read again the book of Acts. It's very plain. We're almost out of time. We're down to about three minutes. Oh, two minutes. We could say a lot more about this and probably will soon in the future. I want to ask you to just be in prayer about this. And if you've not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, would you begin to pray and cry out to God for that baptism? You're not expected to do what we've talked about today without the power of Jesus flowing in you and the power of the Holy Spirit. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. And I'm Alexandra Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. Please visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. You can also write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. And please follow us on YouTube. You can subscribe to our channel, National Prayer Chapel. And you can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. And what happens to those who are laboring in the gospel when they don't have the means, they don't have the money to pay for radio? I'm very grateful for you. You stepped forward and the month of July was covered and paid for. Thank you. God bless you, my dear brother and sister, for your sharing with us in the work of the gospel. We'll talk to you soon. God bless you. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.